Okay, so I've got like a 90-minute talk, okay, in my head and on the notes, and I've got 40 minutes maximum to do it, okay? So uh, bear with me, stay with me, that will be wonderful. So it's Halloween, 1517. You with me? Picture it. And this young man, youngish man, German, is walking through the streets of his town, and he's nervous, he's afraid, he's anxious, because he's clutching in his hand uh, some papers and a hammer and some nails. And it's been building up to this moment for a long time. You see, this young man has took a stand against the most powerful institution of the day, the church. The reason he's took a stand is that the church has got so far away from where it was meant to be, and this man could stand it no longer. And, and because the church in that time were selling kind of what they called indulgences and things that, you know, were the saints and, you know, and I'm sorry if you're offended, the foreskins of Peter, apparently there were 13 of them, how that works, I don't know, and all these different artifacts, and they were saying that you could only get to God through these architects, these ar- architects, through these artifacts, building on my mind, and all this stuff, and he, and he couldn't stand it any longer, because you see, God had spoken to him that salvation is not through what we do, but it's through our faith in what Christ has already done. And he could stand it no longer. And so, on Halloween, fifteen seventeen, he walked up to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral and he put these, this paper called the 95 Theses, his 95 issues, up on the door and he hammered them into the, into the door. Now, you might think that's no big deal, hammer something into the door of a church. Who cares about that? In this day, it was a big deal. Because you see, the church of the day was the most powerful institution on the planet. And they didn't like what this man, who by the way was named Martin Luther, had done. And so they hauled him before different people. And eventually in 1521, in a place honestly called Worms, okay, that was the place, they had a council meeting. And the council meeting was called Diet. So it was literally a diet of worms. That is the historical truth, okay? He was before the diet of worms and he was asked to recant or to back down what he'd said about God and about faith. And this is what Martin Luther said. Unless I'm convinced by proofs from scripture or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and I will not retract for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. And then he uttered these immortal words. Here I stand, I can do No other. God help me. Now, he he was faced there not only with excommunication, being kicked out of the church, but possibly death as a heretic. But Martin Luther was a man of conviction. He wasn't a perfect man. He was a man of conviction. And he came to a point in his life where he said, you know what? Here I stand and I ain't moving. I want to tell you about another man who's also a man of conviction who reached similar points in his life. This man's a sailor. His wife was very thin and they had an enemy who was very tall with a beard. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, Popeye. Martin Luther Popeye is a link somewhere. And he used to have this phrase, if you ever know the Popeye, and and, and it went like this, that's all I can stands because I can't stands no more. He reaches a point where he says, I ain't having it any longer. And he popped the spinach and then he sought the enemy out. And you know, men and women who have conviction... Come to a point where they say, do you know what? Here, right now, we're going to take a stand. And I've thought about other people in history, and I've thought about Costa and the Alamo and the 300 Spartans, but they all get killed. So I thought that wouldn't be very inspiring for you today, so we'll forget them. But when you take a stand, you take a stand because you have conviction. Now, if you've got a Bible, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 6. 
And here's this character that we've been looking at the last few weeks, Nehemiah, who's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Because he can't stand it any longer. See, he says, like, that's all I can stand, and I can't stand it no more. Because God's name is in disgrace. There's no glory of God in the city, and I'm going to do something about it. So we're going to rebuild the walls. And Ezra, he also was a man of conviction. He says, I can't stand it any longer because there's no temple, there's no worship of God, and we're going to rebuild the temple. And they're men of conviction. But as we looked at last week, men of conviction, women of conviction, get opposition. And they got opposition in Nehemiah chapter 4 and in Ezra. And here's the great thing. This will really encourage you. When you're doing something great for God and you get opposition, the one thing I can guarantee you is this. You'll get even more. It never runs out. And in Nehemiah 6, there's a last ditch attempt by the enemies to stop Nehemiah doing the project that God is asking him to do. And I'm going to go through this quickly. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshen the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. There's a clue in the name. You see, they're building, the, they're doing the project... And the enemies say, you've nearly finished it. Why don't you leave that great thing you're doing and come down to us on the plain of Ono and we'll talk. Now the thing is about Ono is that Ono is in the middle between Samaria and Jerusalem in hostile enemy territory. And it's going to take him a day to get there, a day for the talk and a day to get back. And so these guys are saying, for three days leave your project and come down to us to this hostile place called oh no there's a clue and he says in it says in verse 2 but they were scheming to harm me so I sent messages to them with this reply I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you fantastic saying you know I'm a man of conviction and I know what it is I'm doing and here's the thing men of conviction and women of conviction don't just know what they're doing they know why they're doing it You see, a great project is not rebuilding the walls. A great project is seeing the glory of God re-established in the nation because the walls and gates are rebuilt. You don't just know what you're doing, you know why you're doing it. And he says, I ain't going to leave a great project to go down to your level where you intend to harm me. And then they ramp it up a bit in verse 4. Four times they send me the same message. Each time I give them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. It's crafty, isn't it? Why is it unsealed? Because he wants people to read it. And in the letter, it says, It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, and he's my friend, so it must be true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, you're about to become their king. In other words, he's saying, the only reason you're doing this is for your benefit, not for God's. And Nehemiah is not the first and he won't be the last to be the receiver of unfair and unjust criticism. Anyone ever had any of that in their life? Anyone? Both of us. Okay. That's good. How many of you love it? How many of you love criticism of any type? It's a difficult thing to embrace. And some of you will know, if you read the Hales Owen News on Friday, that we as a church have had a letter, a critical letter. And if you've not read it, then you're all going to go back and read it now. And it, 
an, a gentleman in the, in the community um, who's entitled to his views uh, received our glossy magazine through his door and it said that we're launching a food bank and he basically says he doesn't know whether to be bewildered or disgusted by how in this kind of economic situation we need a food bank and basically equates us as part of the potential capitalist system and if we'd have only listened to Karl Marx everything would have been alright. Now on Friday when I read the letter I'm ready to write a response. Fortunately, I've got wise people around me, staff members who said, you can't use words like that. So I haven't written a response. I will this week, okay? I will write a response this week. But when you receive criticism, unfair or unjust or just, it's a very, very hard thing to deal with. Let me tell you a few things about criticism. We can learn from criticism regardless of its type. See, sometimes the wrong person at the wrong time for the wrong reason can say the right thing. We can discover during criticism that when we are unfairly or unjustly criticised, that there is a God who's a refuge and a strength. See, if you read the Psalms, read David, so many times he was the receiver of unfair and unjust criticism and he discovered that God was his refuge and his strength. But we can also grow through the ability to not let criticism stop us from doing what God is calling us to do. And so what he says is this. He says, first he says to the guy, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're making it up out of your head. Like, couldn't get any clearer than that. You're off on one. Do you know what I mean? This is not happening. And then he says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak and it will not be completed. But I prayed, kill him. No, he didn't. He prayed, now strengthen my hands. Notice he didn't say strengthen my heart or my mind. He said strengthen my hands. And I was challenged by that because I thought actually when we're doing something for God, the challenge is often in the work area. We lose confidence. We lose faith. We lose courage. We lose motivation. And he says we ain't going to do that. This is such a great project. Lord, strengthen my hands. And then they go on to a third strategy which is the most subtle Verse 10, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mahatabal, great names, aren't they? Uh, who was shut in at his home. Listen, he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. And I, I read that and I thought, sounds a good plan. Go to the temple, nothing wrong with that. Shut the doors, be in the house of God. What's wrong with that? Men are coming to kill you. Look after yourself. How can it be wrong to go to the temple? And God spoke to me really clearly. As I started to research it, I realized it was wrong from an integrity point of view. Nehemiah was a politician, not a priest. By temple law, he should not have gone into the temple. If he'd have done this, he'd have broken temple law. He would have crossed a line of integrity that he wouldn't want to cross. But secondly, and this is where God really spoke to me myself directly... This is the biggest thing of all, the biggest danger of all. If he'd have gone to the temple to seek sanctuary instead of changing a nation, he'd have been wrong. Because you see, God asked Nehemiah, the great project that Nehemiah was about, was about changing the nation around him. Not hodling for his own safety in the temple. And I want to suggest to you that many churches in our country and in Europe and perhaps around the world, we would rather huddle in our temples for safety than engage with the world around us. 
And sometimes when we feel under pressure, our inclination is to huddle for safety and worship rather than changing our world. And I've been really blown away by this. And I realised at the nine o'clock service, I think I've been blown away more than anybody else was. But it's really hit me. And I thought, how often do I retreat to sanctuary and comfort when God is asking me to change people's lives? I don't know whether you've ever been to a football match or a, any sporting occasion where it's a team. Anyone been to any sporting occasion? You've watched it and it's a team. Right. Let's use football because it's the only one I, I can lose. Imagine that you followed your team all the way through the season and uh, they've got to the FA Cup final, okay? And you've paid your 350 quid or whatever it will cost you to get to Wembley. And you get there and you're so excited. I mean, you've eaten three pies. You're that excited. And you're, getting, you're finding your seat. Yeah, you find, you're in your seat and you're so excited and, 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 at court and the band plays Abide With Me and all that and you, you just like, you can't contain your excitement now. And your team come out on the pitch and they do the whole shake, the hand of everyone and the ref and everything. And then after the national anthem, they go back and they huddle, don't they? Because men do that now. Do you know what I mean? Because we're like that. And so they huddle and they cuddle together in the middle. And if you've ever seen a team huddle, we never really know what they're saying or doing. I always think, oh, they must be praying. Brazilians do, apparently. But if you imagine you've paid all your money to watch the game, and imagine your team is huddling, the ref blows whistle, and we're about to kick off, but your team are still huddling. And the opposition are now playing the game, and your team are still in the huddle. How frustrated are you? And the clock's ticking and ticking and ticking, and the end of the game has been and gone, and your team have done nothing but huddle. You know, that's what we're like sometimes. As Christians, we love to huddle. And we're in our groups. And we're in our collective. And we worship. And do you know what? It's great to huddle. But I tell you what, there's a game to play and a game to win. And it ain't won in our huddle. It's won when we change our nation. It's won when we win people for Christ. It's won when we stand up for what we really believe in. It's won by men and women of conviction who, like Martin Luther says, here I stand, I can do no other. I'm not going to run into the temple for safety and leave this great project changing the nation. I'm not going to do it. And then he comes to verse 11. What a verse. So I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Isn't that awesome? I will not go. I will not run for my own safety while my city is going to hell. I ain't going to run for my own personal security and keep me and my family all nice and tidy and get my, my ISIS stacked up and my future secured while my city is going to hell. While people in my neighbourhood are dying without Christ. While injustice is in the streets of my city, not just the other end of the world where it's safe and we can visit once a year, right in my city. He says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to run into the temple. I'm going to stand and I'm going to finish what God has called me to finish. You see, men and women of conviction know what they're building and they know why they're building it. So I want to tell you this morning, what are we trying to build as a church? We're trying to build a third place. It's a building. Why are we trying to build it is much, much, much more important than what it is that we're trying to build. And I want to open this up to you this morning because I know some, some of us will say things like, and I've said it, it's so much money. And the church is not a building. We know that. And here's the other one. And what about the poor? 
What about the millions of poor people in Africa and India and Asia? What about all of that? And I've rationalized that in my own mind by saying, but you know what? We've got to reach our nation. We'll win more people and we'll be able to go and do more in these places around the world. And God has challenged me. And I don't want you to misinterpret me. I know some of you are so passionate about Africa. You need not to misinterpret what I'm about to say. And God spoke to me and said, you know what? Your vision for Africa and India is great. It's just not complete. So your vision for engaging with the poor is fantastic. It's just not complete. And I've been challenged by this because I think in our mind, we tend to think that poverty is what we see in Africa, what we see in India, or what we see on our TV screens. And of course it is, and it's horrendous, and we must and we will be passionately involved in that. But I want to tell you, poverty is much more than that. It's much more than that. And I want to ask you to put your big boy pants on this morning. Is that all right? Do you understand what I mean by that? I want us to grow up a little bit. And, and, and to think a little bit with our minds. And not just about me and my life, but about a bigger picture. And I want us to think about poverty this morning. Um, we're not going to think about poverty in the context of Africa or India, because that's too easy sometimes. We're going to think about it in a broader context. You see, the essence of poverty is a lack of resources that are essential for living with dignity. And of course we see that in Africa and India and it's horrendous and we must and we will keep involved there. But it's broader than that. And I want us to think about it from a Christian perspective and a biblical worldview rather than just a media one or an emotional one. And I want us to think about poverty, not in Africa or India, but I want us to think about it in Hales Owen. Ever heard of that? Or in the Dudley Borough or in the UK or here's one, Europe. Because we're European, aren't we? If we're British, no? Flipping not, you know. <laughs> I could see it, I could feel it in the room. We've got UKIP people in the house, I could feel it. We ain't European. We live on the continent of Europe. The continent where Martin Luther brought about the great reformation that brought us the faith that you and I are enjoying now. That's the continent we live in. If poverty is lack of resources that are essential for living with dignity, I want to propose to you that Europe is incredibly poor. There's different kinds of poverty. We're just going to look at a few. There is the morally poor. I don't know whether you know, but lack of resources that are essential for living with dignity. Many people in Europe are not living with dignity morally. You know, one in ten babies born in this country are born to teen moms. In Russia, Bulgaria, Belarus and Romania, there are more abortions than there are births. I'm not making a comment about abortion. I'm making a comment that there are more than there are births. There are 75 million 15 to 25 year olds who commit serious crime across Europe. Haven't even started on sex and drugs and economics. We are in a morass of morality where there are no absolutes, aren't we? Many nations in our world who may be materially poor are morally much stronger than what we are. Europe is morally poor. It's time we stand for the morally poor of our community and of our nation and of our continent. What about the relationally poor? The breakdown of the nuclear family, the, less, the loss of a sense of community. Jane and myself were, were meeting recently with a very senior uh, member of our community who said, you know, how Zoin does have a community... It's just hard to find. And there's that sense of, you know, where is the kind of nuclear family? 
And even in parts of southern Europe right now, traditionally Catholic parts like Spain and Italy, you know, where it was very strong family, nuclear family community, that's beginning to erode and to break down. And of course, you, you speak to the average African and you say, how are you? And the African will look at you a little bit like, what are you talking about? How am I? You mean how are we? Because often for an African, they don't think about I and me. They think much more about us and we. And we've lost that. Because in Europe, we just think about me and I, don't we? We need to understand that in Europe, we are relationally poor in many ways. I'm going to say a few provocative things this morning. Is that all right? And I was going to say I don't want to provoke you, but I really do. And I'm going to do that. Um, I heard a story recently and about a man who was a North American preacher who went to Belfast to preach to about 2,000 people. And if you know anything about Northern Irish Christianity, you'll know it's very interesting. A lot big heritage and, you know, you know, the, you know whatever. And uh, basically, th- this guy went and they didn't really like this guy. He was from a perspective where they were very suspicious about North American, the suit, the, all this kind of stuff, you know bright shiny teeth etc and and these guys these 2000 people were still were holding on to the fact that God will do what he did in 1859 okay which was this great revival that would sweep across the province and they would have meetings prayer meetings still believing that God would do all that which is great and this guy got up to preach and he was late he was late for the event so that didn't go down well neither and so but when he did finally come up and he apologized for being late he then said it's great to be able to hear to, to talk to you it's great that you're looking for revival, you know, and whatever. And he says, can I just ask, is there any single parents here? Could you stand? And about 120 people, women and men, who were lone parents, stood. And he said, do you know what? And can I just say, when I make this, if you are a single parent, you do an amazing job. I know many of you in this church, you do a phenomenal job. And I'm not meaning to, to say anything other than that. You do an amazing job. But he said this. He said, if you've been invited to a Christian family's house for a meal, you and your kids, in the last two weeks, would you sit down? Nobody sat down. He said, what about four weeks? Nobody. Six weeks? Nobody. Two months? A couple. He went to about six months. Hardly anybody sat down. And his point was this, that actually we want revival and we pray for all-night prayer meetings, but sometimes we don't reach out to people who are right next to us. And that's just people within the church, let alone people who aren't in the church. And if someone is a single parent, don't their kids deserve to have some male influence in their life or some female influence in their life that's good and wholesome and Christian? And when I heard that, I thought, man, alive. Because I can go to Africa and can reach out to people there. Do you know what I mean? And that's fantastic. Sometimes I hide behind that. It's easier to do that sometimes than it is to reach out to people in my own community or my own church or my own town who may be in need. And I'm not saying if you're a single parent, you're in need. I'm not saying that. It's a point. There are all kinds of relational poverty around us. There's the motivationally poor, which is where hopelessness engulfs us so we have no adequate means or confidence to tackle life's challenges. It's one of the big motivations for us in terms of what we're doing with young people in the community through the youth and through Faith Trust and, and others. And I know many of you have that passion as well. And you're teachers or you're social workers and you're involved in that. And you know that there are motivationally poor people in our community. Am I right? There are people who have no hope, who can't get out of the sense that I'm just going to be a nothing and a no one. They're motivationally poor all across Europe And they need a church that's going to make a stand for them. 
and show them that there is hope. What about the Romani people? You know who I'm talking about? We would commonly call them gypsies. Nobody really knows how many gypsies there are Romani people in Europe because a lot of countries don't keep statistics. Somewhere between 4 and 12 million. UNICEF did a report on the Romani people in Bulgaria, a country that I know well. And they reckon that 84% of Romani people in Bulgaria live below the poverty line. 84%. But then they deserve it, don't they? Because they're all thieves. I've heard that in churches. To my shame. And somehow we adopt these kind of attitudes that poor people are African people. No, no, they're not. Poor people are everywhere. Everywhere. Poverty is everywhere. Poverty, you can find all kinds of poverty in the richest places you can imagine. Because there are all kinds of poverty. Motivationally poor. What about the materially poor? Those who lack the basic necessities to sustain themselves. Now, of course, when we compare Europe to Africa or India, we realise there's hardly any comparison. We understand that. But, even within our context of Europe, there are people who are below the poverty line. 16% of Europe is considered below the poverty line. You know, I, last year, some of you guys are here, we went out to Albania. and You've heard this story before and... And we, we went to, um, and Albania was, Moldova is now the poorest country in Europe, but Albania was the poorest country in Europe. And, and we went to a resort place, and it really wasn't that poor, relatively. And then we went 15 minutes to a community. And the community was built, if you could say built, on a garbage dump. that was about half an acre of refuge and waste and sewage, and steam and smoke were rising off it, and people were living on it. Taking food out of it. Taking clothes out of it. I haven't seen anything as bad as that anywhere. Anywhere that I've ever been. And there was a community there and there were pigs which looked like they were mutant pigs. Honestly, they looked like they'd been near a nuclear reactor. They were mutant and there were kids and people running around. And I, and I remember all of us getting out of the bus. We were all quite excited. And then we were walking and I could see people's faces changing. And some of our guys with tears running down their cheek thinking, this is Europe. This is Europe. This is right near where we are. It's three hours away. And there are people living in incredible material poverty. We have to take a stand. And it's not enough, I believe, just to say, well, it's in Africa or it's in India, because that's an incomplete vision. We have to take a stand for the poor wherever they are. And that's partly why we want to do the food bank. And our friend who's written the letter... I understand what he's saying there, but I tell you what, I don't care whether it's capitalism, Marxism or anything else. If people are hungry, we need to feed them. In a month, we've done 280 meals. In a month. Now, in one sense, we're sad about that, of course. That's not triumphalistic. We're sad about that because there's a need. But the people who needed those meals don't want to debate Marxism or capitalism. They need food. And that's why we're the church. That's why we're the church. Because we need to make a stand for the materially poor. Finally, uh, before I get to the, the big thing I want to say. Finally, this is introduction. And this is the one that got me the most, if I'm honest. The spiritually poor. Wow. And I feel God has really convicted me about this because I, and I believe God said, Leon, when do you ever really think about this? You think about Africa and HIV AIDS, you think about India, you think about the young people in your town, blah, blah, blah. When do you really, really think about the spiritual poverty of Europe? 
because you see, this is the continent where our evangelical faith was birthed, right? This is the continent where missionaries went from here, around the world, and changed the world. This is the continent where art and literature and music were inspired by a faith in God. This is the continent where buildings were built to the glory of God. This is also the continent with the lowest rate of spiritual growth on the planet. See, the biggest churches in Europe are pastored by Nigerians all around the place, which is fantastic. Thank God for the Africans. We need them. We need them because we are in a desperate state spiritually. Something like 14 out of 48 countries have a less than 1% rate or 1% statistic of evangelical believers in our nation, in Europe. It's something like 7.5% in England, and we're doing well at 7.5%. I met a fellow last week whose name was Jesus. (laughs) Spanish, and his name was Jesus. I didn't know Jesus at Paella, but there you go. And I met this fellow, and this fellow was born into a traditional Catholic family in the south of Spain. And I'm not making any comment if you're from a Catholic background or on the Catholic church, but he was born in a very traditional, very legalistic Catholic background. He committed his life to Christ, entered into a relationship with God, became born again. His family said, we'd rather you be a homosexual or a terrorist, and they disowned him. And he said, sorry, but here I stand, I can do no other. And he's now a missionary planting churches in Spain. He told me there are 7,400 places in Spain with no church. That in much of Spanish society now, it's preferable to be an atheist than it is to say you're a believer. The the amount of Christians, evangelical Christians, not Catholic, evangelical Christians in Spain is now 0.4%. Not 4, 0.4%. Serbia, Belgrade is the capital of Serbia, a city of 1.6 million. There aren't a thousand Christians in the whole city. Montenegro, a whole country, there are three churches in Montenegro. Macedonia, a country of 1.2 million, people think there are 700 Christians. Now, I'm not trying to say all those statistics to kind of think, flipping, this is depressing. We have to wake up here and be mature and say, do you know what, God? Spiritually, we are the poorest continent on the planet. You see, you got Africa, spiritually, wow. I mean, poverty, yes. But you see such a spirituality. You see more churches than you could have hot dinners, if you hadn't. And yet in Europe, cities of over a million, two million people with three churches. We've got to make a stand for the spiritually poor. So why am I saying all that? That's why we're trying to build a third place. We know what it is. Why it is, is so much more important. Why we're trying to build it. Well, the church isn't the building. We know that. But a building makes a statement. Did you know that? You see, when churches are shut and turned into furniture sales shops, that makes a statement. When buildings that were erected to the glory of God are now nothing more than museums, it makes a statement. Other faiths know that. Which is why in Bulgaria there have been 4,000 mosques built in the last 10 years. In Crimea, part of the Ukraine, there are mosques being built all the time. There's a 100 million pound mosque proposed for London. There's a huge mosque proposed for Dudley. It's not a statement about Islam. We love Muslim people. Not a statement about that. It's a statement that we understand buildings make statements. 
and we believe that, that it's God's will for us to build a third place because we can reach more people right here who are poor. Morally, relationally, motivationally, materially and spiritually. See, I'd gone through this thought process in my mind. We build the building, we can reach more people, we can send them to the real parts of the world where there's poverty. And we will do that, of course we will. But God has really grabbed a hold of me to say, Leon, that's an incomplete vision. Because there are poor right in your community. But your definition of poverty was too narrow. And, and I don't know whether I want to be part of just sending people to the other side of the world where our own country and our own continent goes to hell. So, so we want to build a third place because we want to reach more people and because we want to make a statement. There's a song that we sang at Christmas in our carol service, a Casting Crown song. One line out of the song I want to put up here. It says this, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. How many of you believe that? God is not dead, nor does he sleep. I tell you what, most Europeans don't believe that. They believe that. Most Europeans now, Africans don't believe that. South Americans don't believe that. Many North Americans don't believe that. Many Asians don't believe that. Many, many, many Europeans believe that. God's dead. Or if he's not dead, he's just asleep. We don't believe that, do we? We don't believe that. And I'll tell you what, our community will not believe that. Because I'll tell you what, we've had amazing conversations. And people say to me, why are you doing that? And how are you doing that? How many of you are there? And what? You're trying to do what? That's amazing. And, and, And we get the opportunity to say, we're doing that because our faith is inspiring us to do that. Because we want to make a stand for those in our community that need that. And in order to do this, folks, we all need to take a stand to not quit because it's hard or not run into the temple for safety or not hide behind our own agendas, but actually to sacrifice, to give, to pray and to work. And it takes conviction. And, And I want to say a couple of final things in my final final. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice is what we say. Some of you will put in tens of pounds. Some of you will put in hundreds. Some will put in thousands. Some of you may put in tens of thousands. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. And some of you will say, oh, I can't sacrifice. I don't buy that anymore. I did at the start of this. I don't know. God's taken me way past that. says, Leon, get a grip. Grow up. If anybody says, I can't, that's not the truth. They won't, is the truth. That's fine. Totally fine. That's between you and God. But please, I can't is not the truth. We all can. I, I did a, a home gathering a, a few weeks ago in the day. Some of you know this story. You've been at the home gatherings where I've told it. And it was a group of mostly pensioners and people on low incomes. And it was brilliant. I loved it. And I used all the numbers that I use at all the home gatherings, keep exactly the same presentation. So there are big numbers, thousands. And at the end of that, I say, any questions? And one of the fellas said, I'm a pensioner. And he said, in case you haven't realised, you know, of course we have. Uh, and he says, and I've been thinking for ages, I want to give something to the building, but I don't know what I can do. I'm a pensioner. He says, then I thought, well, I get the Daily Mail every, every morning. He says, so I, I won't get it and I'll just save the money and I'll, and I'll give the money to the building. He says, so I did that and actually, he says, I got £120. £120. He says, I haven't really missed it, but just by making... So can I sacrifice? Can I give? Of course you can. The question isn't can you, the question is will you? That's the question. And this morning you might say, well, that's all very well and good, Leon, but you know, I, I just, I can't do that. I'm too weak. 
I'm too scared. I'm too broke. I'm too selfish. Do you know what? I believe you can do it. And the reason I believe you can do it is when I look at Jesus. Because when I look at Jesus, I see somebody who had lots of opportunities to leave the great project he was doing, but he didn't. See, the devil said to him, you could have a life with no pain, no hunger, and no opposition in Luke chapter 4 in the desert. And Jesus said, yeah, I could, but I'm not going to. Because for the joy set before me, I'm going to endure the cross. And Jesus never quit. Jesus never ran into the temple for safety when it got tough. In the Garden of Gethsemane, even though it killed him literally, and he sweat drops of blood, he never backed down because he knew what he was doing, and he knew why he was doing it. And because Jesus did it, I know you can do it. And I know I can do it. Why? Because Jesus lives in you, doesn't he? The Bible says rejoice because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. And the Bible says that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. You say, oh, I can't sacrifice. Of course you can. Because the spirit of Jesus lives in you. And Jesus showed us how to do that. And a final thought. This is definitely the final thought. I was um, driving or traveling somewhere this week. And I had this thought. I thought, you know, Moses and Joshua both heard the phrase, same phrase, the place where you're standing is holy ground. And I know that, like, because I've been a Christian for ages, and I know that, and we all know that, and so we see holy ground, we're standing on holy ground, all that kind of thing. And then God spoke to me, do you know what? You've heard that wrong. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Whenever you make a stand for God, that place becomes holy. It's not a holy place where you just go, oh, this is holy. Do you know what I mean? No, the place where you stand for God becomes holy ground. So if we as a church say, do you know what? We're not going to let our community dive into secularism and hell any longer, or our nation, or our continent, or our world. We are going to make a stand as a group of people, just a few hundred people. We're going to make a stand because we want to see... Jesus lifted high and we want to see the cause of Jesus extended. If we make a stand, that becomes holy ground. If you make a stand in your own life for God in any issue, that place becomes holy ground. Isn't that awesome? And when it's holy ground, God's there. And God will do amazing things in us and through us, folks, if we will all step up. I don't know what's going to happen in five weeks' time. All I know is this, we can. Will we is a different question. Let us pray.